Let's read together Acts chapter 28, starting at verse 17. This is God's word. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had not done anything against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you uh, what your views are for regard to this sect. We know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, quote, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I've chosen this, this particular message um, rather like last week. It's a sort of standalone message, which I hope will encourage you, uh, strengthen you. But also, if you're feeling that you have a, um, a, a weak heart, or if you need some strength or some sort of fortitude, I trust that this will also encourage you this morning. And as you can see on the screen behind me, the sort of title, I suppose, of this one-off talk is The Gospel, sorry, The Advance of the Gospel. The Advance of the Gospel. And I, I want to really draw out two things. There's much we could say about these verses, but I want to bring out two things uh, to encourage you this morning. Number one, because the gospel powerfully advances, we will not be beat down. And number two, because the gospel powerfully advances, we will attempt great things for God. Not be beat down. We will attempt great things. First of all, because the gospel powerfully advances, we will not be beat down. This is the, the final episode. This is right at the end of the book uh, called Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke, St. Luke. It's the second part of his two-parter, the gospel according to Luke, and then the Acts of the Apostles. He's the only one in the Bible to, to do that, the only gospel writer to write part two. Um, and, and what we're seeing here takes place in Rome. The apostle Paul is imprisoned. He's under house arrest. Uh, by this stage in his career, he's a, he's a relatively old man. He has uh, had a, a transforming encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He has uh, experienced the power of Jesus working in him from inside out. 
Um, and so as such, he has devoted his life to serving and following and saying yes to Jesus. And it gets him into all sorts of adventures, all sorts of scrapes, gets him into prison, gets him beat up a few times, shipwrecked, etc. He has walked and traveled hundreds of miles to progress the gospel, to share far and wide with whoever would listen that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is transforming and it is uh, world-shaping. And so he visited cities, he planted churches, and he had some incredible times of hardship and trial. But he learned because the gospel powerfully advances, we will not be beat down. Um, and so what we're coming to here in, in the last section, the last bit of the last section, um, in uh, the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, we've got Paul coming to the center of power, the most uh, appearing or preparing to appear before the most powerful man in the world at that time, which would have been Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire, uh, leader of the free world, as, as you might say in today's language, although it wasn't that free in those days. Uh, and, and Paul sought to testify uh, before Caesar, the highest council in the world, I suppose. And, and what he would have wanted to do was to bring to this individual the good news of Jesus, why he was in chains, uh, all about Jesus. And he hoped, no doubt, that in sharing the good news with Caesar at some point, if he got a few moments uh, to, to share what he was thinking, uh, he would no doubt be able, by the grace of God, to change the world. If Caesar became a believer in Jesus, that would change everything. And so Paul, almost in his last uh, few uh, years or, or months um, in his life, wanted to go big. He wanted to go to the top and preach the good news to Caesar. But Acts 28 ends with the verses that we just read there. We, we don't get to hear what happened. We've no idea what happened. It's sort of gutting, actually, I think, because, you know, those of us, uh, you know, who like a good ending to a story, uh, we, we want to know how it went, right? We want to know what, what, what was said to Caesar and, and how it all came about and, and, and the rest of it sort of conjecture. We don't really know exactly what happened uh, to Paul thereafter. So we're sort of left in some ways with a bit of an anticlimax at the end of this amazing story about the life of Paul. So here we are in Rome, and Paul is in custody, right? He's, in, he's under house arrest. And what we're reading today is that he is inviting local Jewish leaders from the city of Rome, the great city of Rome, to tell them all about Jesus. Um, if he can't get to Caesar or can't win Caesar, I suppose, he is desperate to win uh, the religious leaders, the, the, the leaders of the Jews. Because again, imagine if he could influence them, he could influence the entire city for the gospel of Jesus. And this has been his practice all along as we trace his, his ministry career, if you, if you like. Um, every time he goes to a new town or a new region, he would seek out the, the, the religious leaders of that place, the, the Jewish leaders, and he would seek to talk with them first and foremost. That's, that was his pattern. And it says in verse 23 of our text today, uh, all day long um, he expounded... Uh, to them, that is the Jewish leaders, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them all about Jesus. He just does not stop trying to convince people about Jesus. He gave it all he could, right? He, he, he shared with them, uh, it says he went to Moses and the prophets, you know, uh, the short, shorthand way of saying the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. He went through all of that and he tried to demonstrate to them and, and persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. That, that, that all your hopes 
and all your expectations and all the teachings that you've heard and no doubt given yourself, all the longing in your heart, all of that will come to fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. All of those things in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, were types and shadows of the things to come. This system of belief that, 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 that has been prepared for you, uh, all you need to do now is receive Jesus as the Messiah and everything that you believe will click into place. It will suddenly make sense. He would have said things like this. But I think it's fair to say, um, in Rome especially, that the response was somewhat muted. Uh, we, we know that, 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 that Paul longed to see the Jewish people, his own people, turn to Jesus as Messiah en masse. But he never saw it. In verse 24, it says, Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And we think to ourselves, is that it? Is that it? Is that the best he could do? Such a distinguished communicator of the gospel. Some believed and some decided it was all a pile of rubbish. What did Paul do at this moment? How did he feel? Was, did he despair? Was he beat down? That he has reached the center of the empire and hardly anyone wants to know about Jesus? So it must have felt. Well, instead, he, he refers to Isaiah chapter 6. He sort of responds by quoting an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah chapter 6. And he says to his hearers, to the Jewish leaders, the same thing that Isaiah saw is what's happening today. Uh, let's look at that in verses 26 and 27. Uh, God said to the prophet Isaiah many years before uh, that you're going to go and preach to people a certain message uh, and you will indeed, uh, his hearers will indeed hear it, but they won't understand it. Uh, they will see it, but they will never perceive it. Their eyes have been closed. There is, they can barely hear. They won't connect the dots. They won't see the light. This is what's been going on, and this is what happened to Isaiah. This is what's happening to Paul. It's kind of like a ministry of failure, I suppose. That was Isaiah's calling, to go and preach a message that no one's going to listen to. But Paul says, no, I, I know that's not my job. My job is to proclaim the gospel. My job is to, to show and tell the kingdom of God. I, I can't make you believe it. I can't change your mind. I can't change your heart. Only God can do that. My job is to proclaim the gospel. And maybe... Um, in some ways, you've seen in your own experience something like what Paul is experiencing here. Um, maybe you have, in, in church experience or in your family or something like that, you, you have come across those who seem close to the gospel. Right? They seem close to, to, to coming to faith in Jesus. And they just never seem to cross the line. Right? They always are comfortable just to almost stay behind the line a little bit, come this far and no further. Maybe that was even you one day, once upon a time in your life. And I think we could probably expand it out as well. And, and, and we think that perhaps when we look at our world and we look at our city here even, and we see maybe certain people groups or communities that seem especially uh, what we could describe as ripe or well-placed to receive the good news of Jesus. And we might think of our Catholic friends, for example, with whom we share much, we share a framework even though we have some crucial differences on, on the gospel itself. Or perhaps even our Muslim friends and contacts 
who seem, in my experience, to be very open to spiritual things. They accept some understanding of God. They even have some knowledge of Jesus, even though it's very different from the Bible. Even in our own province here, there are thousands, aren't there? Thousands of people who have had some kind of church background. And we we think, oh man, they're so close. They're so close. If they just get it, if the penny just drops, then we might see a huge wave of of, of salvation and conversion. That's our desire, isn't it? As, as a community on mission, that's what we want. That'd be awesome. But for some reason or other, it, it, it just hasn't happened. And, and maybe when you're thinking of that person in your family or in your life that you just seem so close to the gospel and yet have never seemed to cross the line, it's frustrating, isn't it? When it just doesn't click or pop or whatever needs to go. We hope that... God moves in some amazing ways. We, we desire that. We pray for that. We, we do all that we are called to do to the best of our abilities. We share the gospel, even imperfectly. We, we offer ministry. We try and care in practical ways. Right? We, we seek to live out our faith in community with one another so that people don't, don't think it's just me being a weirdo. Like we're, There's a bunch of weirdos. That's why we do it. It gives, it gives validity to what we say we believe. We do all these things. We try and see the long haul, and yet we see no response. And it's heartbreaking. But we need to see, I think, like Paul does here, and like Isaiah before him, who he was quoting, we need to see that the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, cuts both ways. Right? It's good news to some people, but it's offensive to other people. And, and, and the gospel goes deep. You, you, you all have probably heard of this uh, famous bit from Hebrews 4. Um, we can read it together. The Word of God, if we think of that as the gospel, right, the good news. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The gospel is good news, but my goodness, it is painful. It goes deep. It cuts deep. There's no hiding. There's no hiding from God's eyes. That's what that says. There's no sin that he can't see. And that's deeply unpleasant for for all of us, let's face it. And, And many people on that basis will push away, push away the gospel because they don't like what it reveals to them. Their worst nightmare about themselves is actually more true than they realize. And so for them, the gospel is too much. I I can't go there. I I can't accept this. I can't take this. And so they remain resistant. In other words, we can say that they have understood law, but they haven't understood grace. And Paul saw this. And his hopes for Israel, his people, were never realized. And yet, he was not beat down. He was disappointed, yes, but he was not discouraged. Not at all. I mean, look at him. Does he appear to you as a man who's discouraged? Even in his later years, he is an old man going hard after God, sharing the gospel passionately in his twilight years, as passionately as he has ever done. And we may ask ourselves, well, how did Paul maintain this enthusiasm for such a long period of his life rather than just being a blip when he had the energy and then he went down again? How did Paul manage to not get beat down and discouraged and 
give up. Well, he discovered, I think, during his time in prison, mostly, um, in fact, he wrote these words in prison <laughs> um, from Philippians 1. We'll be looking at it together over the summer uh, in our, in our um, summer scheme up at Clarewood. But he says these words here, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He, he discovered that, um, painfully, to live is Christ. If you get that, that he did, if Christ is your all in all, if, if, if you follow him for who he is and enjoy him for what he has done, if you trust him and obey him no matter what, then you won't be beat down. Let's think of it practically. Um, and I'm speaking to myself as much as any of you here. <laughs> um, if we only serve Jesus with a fixed plan of what we want him to do, right? If we, if we only serve him with a guaranteed, you know, with a desire for a guaranteed outcome in our minds, then we will end up bitter and beat down and discouraged because he's not doing what we think he should be doing. See what I mean? Of course we're going to end up bitter and beat down and discouraged if we have a narrow frame of reference as to what we will allow Jesus to do or not do and act in a certain way we think he should. In other words, I suppose we could say, putting it very bluntly indeed, we're ultimately not serving Jesus in those moments, are we? We're, 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 we're serving a certain outcome. We'll say, I'll follow you if you do this. I'll follow you if you open this door here. And so when we don't get those results, or if it doesn't ping open the way that we hope or in the, the time frame that we assign, then we give up. We get beat down. Right? We, we abandon the mission. And then we walk away and we end up in the doldrums. But for Paul, the old man at this stage, to live is Christ. And when he actually lived that and, and, and understood it and brought it into the center of his heart, it brought him tremendous freedom. It meant that he could sit there in jail and still know contentment because he's already got the greatest treasure, right? Let me ask you a question. Go think about this later at home. If, if God called you to go and serve him and teach and expound and testify and use all your energy and yet no one will listen... Would you do it anyway? That's what Isaiah is saying. Go and preach a message no one's going to listen to. If God tells you to do it, would you go and do it? Right? It's not, it's not how church planters want to think, right? It's not the message we want to hear. Um, it's, hard. it's hard for anybody who's like a visionary or apostolically minded or apostolically gifted. We don't want to think like this. No one wants to do ministry, do they, and see no response. But I think that question... Would you do it anyway? It tests our motivations, right? Um, if God called you using the words of Isaiah, would you do it? You may have heard of the name William Carey. He, he's known by many as the father of modern missions. Um, but that was a title that was given to Carey only after he was dead and gone. Because at the time, during his life, it didn't feel like he'd achieved very much at all. Uh, William Carey was born in 1761, so it's quite a few years before any of us in here were born. 
Uh, he was raised in a small village in England, and he, he was an apprentice cobbler, mended shoes. Um, he came to faith as a, as a very young man. And uh, he managed to get hold of some second-hand or some borrowed books, even though he had no money to buy them himself. And he managed to acquire a New Testament, uh, a Greek New Testament grammar book, which he devoured. He seemed to have a certain aptitude for languages, and I, it's not something I possess whatsoever. Uh, he married a woman called Dorothy Plackett. Uh, but times were incredibly hard for the couple. They, foot, they lost their first child, age two. Difficulty eking out a living as a cobbler and a wife and trying to start a family. The business was incredibly poor for them. But because of his faith and his enthusiasm to serve Jesus, he became a Baptist minister. And he and his family moved to the other side of the world as it would have felt to India and his desire to go and bring the gospel to the people of India. And during his time there, uh, his friends deserted him. Uh, he, he knew uh, nothing but illness and loneliness and regret. He wrote in his diary at one point, I'm in a strange land. No Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. Uh, a second son died of dysentery, aged five, whilst in India. And his wife, Dorothy, developed a severe mental illness uh, requiring the only treatment they had at those, in, in, in those days, which was confining her and physically restraining her because of her frequent outbursts. Carrie's first convert to Christianity came after seven years of hard graft. It was not the revival and the breakthrough that he had prayed for or wanted and after 41 years of ministry in India, Kerry saw 700 converts, which is a very modest number given that it's a nation of millions of people. He hoped that many thousands would turn to Jesus. And yet when you read his journal, you realize that Kerry was not beat down. All right, throughout his life, he drove on with this deep desire, this singular purpose to bring the gospel to India. He was not beat down. He writes up here in his diary, This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me, but I rejoice that I am still here, and God is still here, and his word is sure. He was not beat down. Where does he get this energy from to serve God in this incredibly hostile land over such a long period of time? It's because he knows that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knows that the gospel is powerfully advancing one way or another. Whether we are the ones who are sowing the seeds so that the next generation can reap the harvest, he knows the gospel powerfully advances. God's purposes shall come about. And he is working to a glorious end. So as we close out this first point, are you here this morning feeling beat down? Feeling exhausted? Come to Jesus and come and enjoy him. And as we say, commune with him in worship and in prayer and through his words. And he will lift you up. Because the gospel powerfully advances, we will not be beat down.
But the second thing then this text shows us, because the gospel powerfully advances, we will attempt great things for God. Uh, Paul is something else, right? He is a machine. He is an inspiration. He does whatever it takes. He goes wherever there is a need. He finally makes it to Rome, uh, the center of the known world, right? The the place of power. Um, He's under house arrest. We, We know that. But he sets up shop. Right? He, he doesn't let that fact hold him back. Um, he seems to have uh, restricted movements, but yet he's given liberty to invite guests and friends and religious leaders to him so that he may embark on what seems to be some sort of lecture series or a set of preaching or something like that. And it seems to be that numbers are increasing as the word about this apostle spreads throughout the city. And in the end sequence, we see in verse 31, there he is, this old man Paul, full of faith, full of hope, uh, full of desire for Jesus. It says there he spent his time proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the climax of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, right? We don't get to hear what happens between him and Caesar. This is the climax. Because ultimately, this is not about Paul. This is about the good news of Jesus. This is about the kingdom. And there it is, getting preached boldly and without hindrance in Rome. No one's stopping him. In fact, I think this is probably the first time that this could be said in the whole book of Acts that it is preached without hindrance. There he is exercising this this powerful gospel ministry on house arrest. He's restricted, but the gospel is not. And as far as Luke is concerned, the, the author and the editor of all this stuff here in the, gospel, in the book of Acts, the gospel has made it. That has arrived in Rome and is being percolated without hindrance. Paul is not stuck in a dead end. The gospel is free. Not only could Paul meet and talk and lecture and preach and all the rest of it, but he wrote, he wrote letters. He wrote the letter to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, to Philippians, to uh, at least one of the letters to Timothy. A big chunk of the New Testament was written and compiled while Paul was in prison. And, And John Stott, one of the Bible commentators, says that the letters from prison bear a common thread, rich in the themes of the supremacy of Jesus, his lordship, Jesus as the Christ, the unrivaled Lord of all. All these themes come out of Paul's prison letters as he is stuck effectively behind bars. That is how the gospel, sorry, that is how Acts ends. Paul is chained up, but the gospel can never be chained up. And I think when we understand this, that we're seeing here playing out in Paul's life, and this is key, if we understand the gospel is never chained up, we will attempt great things for God. Okay, when we see this, when we see that the gospel is unhindered, there is nothing stopping us, we will start to say as a church, well, what have we got to lose? As a community on mission, is there anything we cannot do? Let's attempt great things for God. I think it draws faith from us. And where does this phrase come from? By the way, attempting great things for God, it comes from Carey himself. He, he wrote again um, in one of his uh, speeches, actually, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. You maybe heard that before. We, we've seen how tough 
Carey had it. And yet he was sustained by this big vision of God, of Jesus Christ, of his splendor. Amen? His, his, his limitless beauty, his grace, his love. And when he looked at Jesus, Carey said, there is nothing that he cannot do. There is nowhere that his word cannot be heard. There is nowhere that his kingdom cannot come. That is what animated Carey. And when he saw that, when he saw this great vision of Jesus and what he can do, then he wanted to attempt great things for Jesus because the gospel powerfully advances. Right, we can't put any restrictions on what we can attempt for God. And I think for us as a church, as we sort of sign off of this chapter and embark on a new one, let's be encouraged by what we're seeing here, by what, 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 what Paul is teaching us and, and what Kerry experienced. That there is no dream too big that we are not allowed to dream. There is no vision too grand that God cannot supply. Just to be clear, it doesn't, just because we dream something doesn't mean God is therefore compelled to do it. We know that. We saw that in the first point. But because the gospel is powerfully advancing, we are, we are compelled to attempt great things for God. Carey, as we've been thinking, experienced much disappointment and sadness in his life. And yet he was not called the father of modern missions for nothing. Close after his time arriving in India, he set about, I mentioned that he was gifted at languages. Well, God put that to good use. He set about learning the Bengali language. And within weeks of his arrival in India, Kerry started translating the Bible into Bengali. He started preaching to small gatherings of Bengali speakers in India within weeks. Kerry continued to expect great things from God. Over the next 28 years, he translated the entire Bible into India's major languages, Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Assamese, and Sanskrit, as long, in addition to 209 other languages and dialects, parts of the Bible. Kerry also sought social reform within India, he, he, he campaigned for the abolition of, of, of infanticide, killing children, and widow burning, uh, a strange uh, evil practice called sati, uh, burning widows. He campaigned and, and, and worked against assisted suicide and won. He founded Serampore College in 1818, which continues to this day, uh, a college which offers theological and a liberal arts education for some 2,500 students per year. He made great strides, and yet he never saw significant conversion of the Indian peoples in his day. And yet he's called the father of modern missions. Why is that? Because what he did and what he attempted for God kick-started what is known as the modern missions movement. And so others came in his path, like Hudson Taylor going to China, and David Livingstone in parts of Africa, and uh, Amy Carmichael from Malisle and many others inspired by what they would have read and seen in the experiences of the Careys. Hundreds and hundreds of others went to the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus. Mission boards were founded, societies created so that the gospel can be proclaimed in all nations, in all languages. So as a result of the movement kick-started unwittingly by Carey, Thousands and thousands, if not millions of people, have heard the gospel of Jesus and have been saved. 
We say here at Foundation Church we are a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. And we believe to the core of our being that the gospel will powerfully advance. So let me end out with a challenge to you if you call Foundation Church your home. What are we going to attempt? What are we going to do? What audacious goals are we going to set? Because of all that we have read, not just in this passage here, but in our time studying the Bible. We're moving to Clarewood as of, I suppose, now. And we're sort of transitioning uh, there over the summer. Why don't we ask the Lord for a thriving church to be built up within a matter of months, if not a few years, to become a place of light and hope and healing where the kingdom of God advances powerfully in Clarewood? Why don't we ask for that? Why, why, why don't we fix our eyes towards Christmas and pl- pray and plan for a building filled with people from the local estate who will come in and hear the gospel and be added to the church? Why don't we ask for that? Last year, we baptized five people. Why don't we ask for a dozen next year or two dozen the year after? In our prayer meeting on Wednesday, we were praying around the empty, dry baptistry at Clare, in the Clarewood Church. And, and it's a bit shabby because it's not been used very much and it's you know, underused. And we were praying, Lord, uh, would it become shabby because of overuse, not underuse? Would we have to open up all the time because there are so many people coming to faith in Jesus? Let's form meaningful relationships with the local schools and see where it takes us. Let's increase our sacrificial giving and see what God does with it. Let's take God at his word and pray like it really matters and, 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 and operate in the gifts of the Spirit just like the Bible says and attempt great things for God. Because we're seeing here and we are compelled from the core of our being that the gospel powerfully advances we can expect great things from god we can attempt great things for god amen let's pray